Hello and welcome to Who's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And uh, it's our final of the Melville season. Uh, Melville is finished on movie now, or it's going to be finishing very soon. We've missed all the other ones that they had, Bob Le Flambeur and uh, something else. This is Le Circle Rouge, or The Red Circle. Yes. Uh, and it's another crime one, more traditional crime rather than the... Yeah, it's a heist film. Heist film. And it's got a real classic heist sequence in it, a good kind of half-hour-long Rafifi-esque silent three guys at the top of their game doing what they do high sequence i had quite a good time with this although i thought it was a bit long oh i didn't think a moment was wasted <laughs> I, did, it, it, I thought it was it had long gurses but um i did quite enjoy it and it opens with another epigraph this is the third of the melville that we've seen that opens with an epigraph this one is a made-up quote supposedly from the buddha but melville actually just made it up about how the Buddha supposedly said, men, when they're destined to meet, will meet. And they'll meet in the red circle. And that's all you get. And I think in some ways it actually goes to what I've been saying about Melville, in that his characters have a mechanical quality to them, in the way they go about their jobs, but don't necessarily seem to get uh, joy or pleasure or meaning out of them. They just do them because they do them. And in the same way, the, the epigraph talks about destiny. And if you're destined to meet, you will meet. And that's just yes. the way it is. I don't know. I mean, um, I'm still not sure I agree with you on that, right? Because mm. I, I think in a way, being a professional about their job is almost the only thing that drives them, right? Because, I mean, you don't get the sense that pulling off this great heist is going to be the culmination of a Landon's life, right? He's just mm. doing it because it's there to do, right? And he is yeah. a crook. You know, uh, so you get aspects of their psychology, like Yves Montand being an alcoholic, having something to prove, you know, being completely a whiz at what he does. But again, why he does it is really not clear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think the thing is that these these his characters are not like three dimensional characters the way that we're used to seeing. Yeah. There's an aspect in which kind of they're working as tropes. Yeah as kind of ideas, really, you know. Um, so so I think I do know what you mean, but I would kind of just kind of put it uh, slightly differently, really. I mean, what I want to know from you is now having seen The Red Circle, do you find that your appreciation of the films has increased by just cumulatively watching more, that you begin to sense his style and, uh, yeah, appreciate Yeah, I more? think I do. I mean, that would, that would be a fair... Thing to say, I think it's been um, it's been a really interesting exercise, and so you can see in this continuations of themes that you've seen in the other films, or continuations of styles, and continuations in. As I said, I think I think the defining thing for me is is somehow about how these characters relate to each other, and it's about it's it's about kind of how the little moments in their relationships or in their behaviours show you everything about them, and actually putting these films, making them in quite tight genres, heists, robberies, cops and robbers, means that you kind of take a lot of that as read. Mm. And so when something slightly different happens, you really notice it. Yeah. You know, So for instance, in this, Yves Montand is a really interesting character because, as you say, he's an alcoholic. He has, he has 
well, what to me appears to be a hallucination, although I, I, yes. it could be real that the the no, it's a hallucination <laughs> definitely seems yeah, yeah seems to be a hallucination, and he has kind of real trouble, and you and then he kind of turns down his share of the loot, doesn't he? Yeah. And you kind of think, what well, what's led him to do this? You know, so whereas the other two characters have more of that, as I was saying, kind of dispassionate uh, uh, attitude to them, he's someone who is troubled. And that leads him to behave in a different way yeah. to the others, you know. Yes. So he's a, he's a very interesting character in this. Before we continue, why don't you summarize the story? Good idea. Alain Long is Corey, who is uh, coming out of prison after fifteen years, I think. I thought it was five. He's coming out of prison after a certain stretch, and he's he's been released early for good behaviour. Um, and on his way out of prison, he's given a tip about a jewelry store in Paris. And it's supposed to be very hard to break into, but, you know, there's lots and lots of loot there. Separately, uh, Jean-Marie Volonté is a prisoner being transported on a train, and he escapes. And there's a huge manhunt set up. Alain Delon kind of notices this, um, deliberately leaves the boot of his car unlocked, and Jean-Marie Volonté comes upon it, hides in there, so those two meet. So they kind of see opportunity and they decide we're going to go to Paris, we're going to pull off this heist on this jewellery store. They get um, Yves Montand involved. He's, as you say, this uh, alcoholic and he's a kind of sharpshooter and they yeah. need him for a very specific part of the heist. But importantly, the Yves Montand character is an ex-policeman and actually top of the class and a classmate of the inspector who is investigating this case. Yeah, and the inspector is played by um, Bourville, André Bourville. He's also a star of French cinema, so he's a big name of French cinema. Not quite a star like Alain Delon or Yves Montand, but a real figure in French cinema. And I suppose the one other character that's really worth mentioning is would be the, the bar owner, yes. who uh, kind of knows all the people underground, but he has a very strict code about not, not snitching to anyone. I wouldn't yes. tell you even if I knew, and of course he does always know, but he's never going to tell. And having seen Army of Shadows so, so close to this, you realize that Simon Signoret, Mathilde in the film, and her weakness with her daughter has a parallelism here in his weakness with his son. Yeah, yeah. the son is um, used by the police as bait mm. to, to get the dad to squeal. Yes. That's, the, um, that's how criminals put it. Um, <laughs> You're done with the lingo. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, like that's that's his weakness because this is a guy who really all that you see about this guy because he's a he's a kind of a thinly drawn and he's a minor character is I don't tell anyone anything, and of course it's like you know it's um, Chekhov's gun. If you've got a guy who says he never tells anyone anything, by the end of the film he's going to tell someone something, hmm. you know, and that's how they get him to do it. I I think this time you know so unlike at the cinema when we go to the cinema together and you know you take notes and I don't. Watching it on movie, I, I was able to take notes, and um, I want to just read you my list, yeah, okay. and then kind of see what you think. So, so I'm looking at the film itself, but I'm also looking at it, you know, now as having seen like several Melville films in a row. So one of the things that strikes me is the sound, yeah, the sparsity of sound. Yeah, so if you compare it to kind of modern films where there's so many sound effects of all kinds, kind of, you know, this is really, really sparse. Yeah, you hear ambient sound, you often hear only one sound at a time, yeah, etc. 
uh, which goes along with a kind of a sparsity of image still. We talked about this last time. Yeah, but I really think, you know, even on in on location shoots around the Place Vendôme, you know, you only see like one figure moving. And it's really impressive when you see more than that. So when, when there are the searches, yeah, it's mm. almost like in contradiction to, you know, what is the norm in the film, which is like, you know, yeah. sparsely populated. Uh, frame. And when all the police come out of the trees at the end as well. It's yes. like there's life all of a sudden. Yeah, so there's a coolness of attitude, yeah? It is kind of, you know, a world that's informed by the world of cinema, yeah? By film noir, by attitudes kind of shaped by uh, 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 cinema. Uh, I also noticed uh, the nightclub, yeah? Which recurs in so many of... Uh, his films. Yeah, we think of Van Flick. You haven't seen Le Samurai, but you know, it's set in the same nightclub. And one other thing about Melville is he owns his own studio, a very tiny studio. Yeah, so you can see how he's reusing kind of uh, elements of it. Uh, stylistically, also the zooms. Yeah, I mean, he is, it's that era, but you know, uh, the, the way he uses zooms is um, completely characteristic. Um, there's kind of uh, a symmetry in the image, yeah. His framing is very symmetrical, yeah. It's often on a on a on an angle, yeah. But it's always, you know, it's almost like um, he frames a very orderly world, yeah. Hmm. There's no handheld camera, no jumping around. It's always like very uh, uh, symmetrical. The attitude to women, yeah. So the very first thing is Alain Delon comes out of prison. And he knows that his girlfriend, his former girlfriend, is with that big boss now. It's, I don't know how he does it, but he sniffs it. You know he knows, right? <laughs> and when he gets home, it's like he takes her picture, which has been on his bedside, and just dumps it in the bin. And that's the last you see of women in this film. Yeah, It's a really uh, male uh, uh, world. Uh, it's another film in which everybody dies at the end. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah no. I, in fact, it got me thinking at one point because I thought everyone dies and they die very unceremoniously. And yeah. I thought, you know, at some point, like all these films, they end up always dying, but they have long careers before that. Why can't we see in the middle when they stay alive after a mission, you know? Mm. Like, that's what I want to see one of them. But you're right, yeah, again. They all die. And actually, the other thing that I noticed is that there is often a scene in at least Army of Shadows, Ludulos, and this where the you know there's a scene in a stately home in and in Lidulos and this the shootout finale happens in the stately home so the films have this you know paris countryside kind of yeah dichotomy mm. they sometimes take little side trips to marseille or whatever but it really is someplace in the country and then paris yeah the kind mm. of uh, um, book and the film, and then you know the 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 finale often takes place in a stately home where all that the stately home represents, which is wealth, security, blah, disintegrates. Yeah, the house yeah. doesn't come off. You know, yeah, the guy who built the house gets killed. Yeah, it's very you know yeah. there's a lot of continuities amongst the films. Yeah, well, the, the I, I think what it's about is. Is, is about set, it's about getting you as close as you can to success and safety mm. and then taking it away from you you know yes. and that happen, and and that's and that's represented more so in a stately home yes. you know i mean certainly it was in le delos 
where mm. it was about it, it really it looked like it had all worked in mm. Legolas and it was about I'm going to be able to move here whereas here because the cop is playing the guy they're going to sell the diamonds to you know already it's not going to work mm. um, so it was more I think more uh, more effective in Legolas but you're mm. right I kind of I really like the way that Melville um, trusts the audience to see yeah so uh you know so for example a lot of the action scenes are very slow but actually i found it very exciting because you know so for example the scene at the beginning where the jean maria volonté character is being you know transported to jail uh you know you see all of the mechanisms through which he manages his escape yeah you see his handcuffs he takes the handcuff off you know you see this uh rope yeah that kind of you think he might strangle the guy below with right uh and certainly you see it go through his mind but then you know kind of basically he goes out the window he kicks the window out yeah uh so kind of and like with the heist you see every step in the process yeah and he lets you see it and kind of and makes it exciting for you to see uh uh with kind of little moments of tension and this is kind of accompanied visually so for example i love that when john maria volonté escapes that you're in a wintry wood, yeah? That the wood is bare, there's no leaves, yeah? And actually, his, he's wearing a, a, a white shirt, and the white shirt, the whiteness of the shirt really stands out against the grayness and bleakness of, yeah, the background, kind of. I mean, I think it's visually stunning, the film. Yeah, and then he strips down to his tighty whities at one point, and he really stands out. Which made me think, how the hell did he manage to keep him so white after, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that. So yeah. anyway, those, those are my kind of thoughts, you know, that kind of I, I wrote down. I mean, what were yours? I t- I, well, th- this is something you're probably not going to agree with and not going to like very much. I really think Alain Delon is not very good in this at all. I don't um, buy him. Um, right. I, th- I really bought him in Unflick. You know, yeah. and I think he really fits in that, and he has that kind of uh, uh, weary thing about him. In this, he, I, I think his moustache is awful, uh-huh. and it, and he, he really, it just doesn't suit him, and I don't think it looks the part. And I think he is a complete blank. He's really wooden. I don't see what you're tr- supposed to get out of his characters, out of his I think, performance. I think he's meant to be wooden. I mean, I think he's meant to be blank. Sorry. You know, I mean, he's not like this in in other films, uh, but mm. he is very much like this in The Samurai. And actually, um, Flick is also very impassive, you know, and I think he's meant to be uh, like this as well, though you're right, you know, kind of the moustache is not a plus, uh, <laughs> you know, but it might have been a plus with a male audience because the thing about Delon is he's ridiculously good looking. I think there is an attempt because he had a big, you know, he was a big action star of the time, right? So, mm. I mean, women, he was, you know, a huge star. So he was liked by both men and women. But I think sometimes these attempts at kind of making him less attractive is something that's really directed at a male audience, particularly in this film, which really, to me, is something that is largely directed at a male audience. It's all men. It's a very yeah. masculine world. It's... It's an action film in many ways, right? So I think kind of, you know, when you see him at the beginning with the moustache and, you know, and the way that he's dressed and his shirt hanging out of, you know, his trousers. I mean, I think there's a deliberate attempt to kind of make him 
less good looking yeah make him more human yeah more mm. something that people can identify with and not be bothered while be with because you know i think largely male particularly heterosexual male audiences are really bothered by male stars who are too good looking yeah yeah I know. I, I know what you mean. I suppose it, the, like the the moustache and the kind of uh, uh, sort of dirtying him up, if you like, makes you think of um, Robert Pattinson in the Safdie Brothers film, uh, oh, Good yes. Time. <laughs> you know, whereas I think it really worked in Good Time, and I think I mean I think it's a much more interesting character in Good Time. It's not a perfect comparison, but I can see what you mean. But I, but I do think that there's just his character in this is is really empty and blank, and it's it's not even a cipher of a character. It just it just holds no interest for me what he does or what he what his internal monologue might be. I don't quite. Yeah. Whereas you know, in in Unflick, I'm thinking about what's this guy thinking. Even if he may not be doing all that much on the surface, it's like a Ryan Gosling type of performance almost. You know, it's like the blank slate that makes you think about what's going on underneath. I don't get that out of this. But I I also know what you say about them being two dimensional characters and they are um, uh, generic. But I I think that's the movie. Like I wanted more. I'm, well. I mean, kind of, you know, it might be worth thinking, well, why does Melville do this, right? Because he's using three of the biggest stars of the period, right? Jean-Marie Volonté, Montand, and uh, uh, Delon. And both Jean-Marie Volonté and uh, uh, Delon are given almost no background. I mean, you don't know what drives them, you know, kind of, you don't know what their past is. I mean, you know what their recent past is, but, you know, for example, mm. I don't even know why Jean-Marie Volonté is on the train. What did he do yeah, to yeah. kind of, you know, so you're not told those things. So I think the kind of, you know, these, this is a film that's kind of communicating with archetypes, yeah, rather than people, yeah? So kind of... Yeah, no, I know. understand that. But I, have, I, what I feel is that I didn't get any communication even through that archetype from Delon in this. Whereas with Volante, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's quite a cliche in some respects because, as you say, you don't know much about him, but he has a violent streak, a kind mm. of ruthless streak. And he's yes. kind of quite, he's kind of grimy almost in some respect. I feel like I get more out of that. I feel like I understand the man a little bit more. Although uh, there is that interesting moment between the two of them where he's picked, um, Delon's picked him up and he's in the boot of the car and the guys who he's previously fought off come back after him. They chase him off the road. And so there's two guys with guns pointing them at Delon saying, get out of the car. And he does. And then Volonté gets out the boot of the car and he's got a gun and he gets the drop on these two guys. Mm. So this is so it's this unspoken thing of Delon putting himself in a very vulnerable position because he trusts that Volonté is going to have his back. Yes. You know? That's kind of interesting. And that's done that's not even done through looks or anything, because you can't look at the guy in the boot. It's just he knows that he's going to be there. So you so these two characters have an understanding at this point already. Yes. I mean, I think I think that whole thing in the film is so fascinating because, you know, what brings uh, Delon, Volonté and Montand together? Yeah. I mean, you know, one is an ex-cop or a retired cop. It's not. Yeah. Uh, with an alcohol problem. So they're all kind of, you know, part of a criminal world. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, Montand who was in the academy with Bourville and who worked with Bourville, you know, they obviously completely dislike each other. And yet Montand forms like this infinity with Volonté and Delon, 
that's kind of, you know, very strong, but unspoken. Yeah, there is like a, a trust there between all three mm. of them, you know. So I think kind of, you know, this raises questions of why, yeah, kind of, you yeah. know, and, and the film sides with them, right? Like, yeah, the film is about these criminals, really, yeah. Uh, so kind of, it's not, it's not making you, um, it's not criticizing the law, but the law is subsidiary. It's yeah. It's the law is the problem with the film. Yeah, kind of. You know, the film is yeah. siding with these criminals, which I think is very interesting. Although I think that, I think um, it complicates the law slightly because I think you are you are given a, a mechanism to have sympathy with the cop character who's after them as well in that meeting he has with the with the politician i think it is early on or he's like a commissioner i'm not sure exactly what his what he was but wait but you see him meeting with, with this guy who's a, who's some official above him who's saying everyone's guilty all men are guilty they're born innocent but that doesn't last very long yeah you know meanwhile you've, and so he's basically saying i want more arrests you know stop stop letting people off stop needing evidence he's saying and the cop is saying well no innocent till proven guilty like i can't just arrest whoever i want there's a there's a process here and so he has a code as well i mean his is his is really the right code and a very official code and actually but he's not a, above him, he's not above using a child's attempted suicide against the father no that's true you know so that's true. um and actually i think again in terms of you know because i think one of the recurring things about melville's films is that as soon as you start having feelings for someone, you have a problem, right? So, you know, on the one hand, uh, uh, Delon trashes his ex-girlfriend's picture. But the only other human affinity or, you know, love or, yeah, is really between the father and the son. And again, that's kind of the downfall of the protagonists of these films. Yeah, it's what kind of weakens you makes you vulnerable kind of you know? yeah so i think you know that's that's a kind of such an interesting thing really for me uh it's a very what's the word um bleak yeah it's very anti-humanist somehow yeah like kind <laughs> yeah. of you know uh so you know these men are all operating in a vacuum of professionalism of doing their job or fulfilling their function Right, uh, but it's it's one that largely that that they're alone, really. Yeah, I mean, even even uh, when they get together, the bonds are the bonds of professionalism, not you know feeling, right? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so and uh, um, you know every bond of feeling is either a weakness or a betrayal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I find that very you know kind of very interesting. Talk to me about the heist sequence because it's a big deal in the film and it's a good half hour long. Yes. You know, what, do, you, do you like it? Do you think it works? Do you think there are problems with it? Actually, I'm such a queen because I just thought the jewels were not good enough. They should have used better <laughs> ones, right? Like, you know, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> and this is like how, you know, Melville is, is so heterosexual because, you know, some other director uh, who had different ambitions for his film you know, uh, would have shown you more of the jewels, yeah, and mm -hmm. would have shown you, they, you know, you would have rented them from Boucheron, 
you know, you would have had like huge big diamonds <laughs> like in Topkapi, right, which is another heist film. And actually showing the beauty of the jewels is itself an attraction, right? You I know, remember you, you had imagine... the same problem with Ocean's 8, which yeah. is the one where the, the girls teamed up at the Met Gala, I think it is. Yes. You're saying like, this is supposed to be the Met Gala, the beautiful dresses, the jewels, the diamonds, show them off, make them beautiful. And the film yeah. doesn't do any of that. Well, and it's a problem because, you know, those are attractions in a film, yeah? People go to the movies to see something like, to see those things, right? I mean, not only to see those films, but, you know, when you have a half-hour heist in the middle of a film, right, which is all about the jewels, you could have made the jewels more attractive. And actually, maybe it's significant. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because every time I've criticised Melville and said something isn't as good as I wanted it to be or good as I thought it should be, you've said, well, there's a reason it's not as good as that. <laughs> and yes. I think there might be a reason here or at least a, an expon- or at least a justification because because to these men, you're saying, yeah, well, these films are for men, but, but also the jewels represent something to these particular men in the film that are stealing them. The, the jewels don't represent beauty. They represent money. And that's yes. all they see in them. True. You know. You know, no, it's true. So to show them off in that way for the audience would not be the way that the characters are seeing them. Yeah. And it would actually kind of be at odds. And it might have, it might have removed the the audience's thinking from the real goal at hand. So for example, and and there was another moment of this though, you know, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Montan in his ramshackle rooms uh, uh, where he's having nightmares about snakes and rats and you know, reptiles jumping on his bed. Yeah, and it's obviously meant to be a really run-down place, yeah? He's drinking himself into oblivion. Uh, And he's meant to be an ex-cop, right? But then you notice all the open luggage. He has these huge... I didn't particularly pick up on it. Go on. Well, he has these huge Vuitton... Uh, arcs, you know, the, the kind of the big uh, luggage that people used to use to go on ships. Yeah, right. that kind of, you know, you would open them and they were like almost standing wardrobes with drawers and everything. Right. Yeah. And my first feeling was, how does an ex, you know, cop, rundown alcoholic in a ramshackle apartment afford Vuitton? <laughs> well, I mean, think about the place you could afford if you didn't buy that stuff. Uh, well, no, my feeling is probably also Vuitton didn't, maybe didn't signify 1970 what it does now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe well, that was signifies... what you're saying, like that might have just been pretty normal luggage to have, actually. Well, I mean, yeah. it was expensive even then, but it, does, it doesn't signify the way that it does now. Right. Yeah, like you wouldn't have expected an audience to know that it was Vuitton in 1970, right? Now it's a big international brand. You see, you see the trademark imprint, yeah, and you know that it is. So, but anyway, so so I'm just saying that you're right because when I saw that luggage, you know, it take, took me out of the film and asked me, why, why is a cop having that luggage, right? Whereas, yeah. so if you would have maybe brought too much attention to the individual jewels, it might have had the same effect, though I would have been very happy to see them. <laughs> yeah, well, you go to the Met Gala and, you know, leave Melville to his... <laughs> to his I was thinking, because I knew, really all I knew about the film was that it had this central high sequence, and that it was kind of iconic, and what have you, and so it just, it made me think about Rafifi when it was happening, because it's silent, almost yes. entirely, or, or yeah. wordless rather, I should say, obviously the sound effects, yeah. um, and it sort of has this professionalism, these guys know what they're doing, and they're just getting on with their job, and so on. 
I found it less spectacular than Rafifi, which I think, um, or maybe spectacular is the, not the right word, but Rafifi really had me on the edge of my seat uh-huh. um, in a way that this never did. Uh, there were moments, I mean, I know what you mean, uh, but there were moments where it did for me. Um, you know, the moment with the uh, security guard when they're trying to climb in the window, you know, mm. the moment where Yves Montand shoots the key exactly, you know, but the lasers don't go off. Yeah. So yeah. it takes a while for the lasers to go off. Um, the fact that they haven't taken into account that they are being recorded. Yes. Yeah? You know, kind of. So you know that, yeah, that yeah. There's, there's a recording of them taking place, but they don't. Yeah. So all of those things did kind of um, create tension for me, though it's true it's not the edge of your seats kind of gasping thing that you might yeah. expect in a film like this. Tension would be the word I'd use for what I was missing from it, really. So, like, I understood where everything was taking place. So when the cop, or, or the security guard, rather, is kind of going back and forth between rooms and you get you get a shot on him and then you get a shot on the guys cutting through the glass and it goes back and forth, you know, I I can see how that's trying to create tension. Um, but I, but I didn't, I didn't feel any. Maybe that was just me, though. You know, yeah, I, I mean, no, can you I take them how, how you find them? I did. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I'm also wondering if the films are really in a way about that, you know. So the things that stay in my mind the most are almost like images of isolation. Like There's a wonderful bit where the loan is going down the lift, right? You know, and it is almost like a descent into hell or something, right? Like, you know, you see the lift yeah. going down and then going down again. And, you know, his face keeps going into darkness, really. I like that. I love the pool room sequence where, you know, you, you picture that it has no slots for the balls. But, you know. Yeah, it's a billiard table. Right. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if a table has got balls on and no pockets, it's not worth it. <laughs> That's well, my attitude. Uh, I, I love that scene. I love the bit with uh, Montan, you know, and, and actually it's a very interesting thing, the differences between Montan and Delon, you know, because Delon is playing really impassive. And I think Montan, who's a much warmer, you know, mm. actor, yeah, is, is trying to give you a character, yeah, the kind of, you know, yeah. the alcoholic and, you know, suffering from... Uh, uh, um, the shakes and, you know, and there's something about his face and his stance and so on that kind of, you know, is offering you more. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it is nice to see all these films in one go. I think it's a really interesting exercise. Yes. As opposed to going, oh, yeah, I saw one of these once. I think together you really get a sense of Melville and I really love him. Uh, he speaks to me, you know, that, that kind of worldview uh, really speaks to me. And um, there's, some, there's a kind of a fatalism about it, right? So, you know, kind of I was talking earlier about how the, u- the sound is used so sparingly, you know, how kind of the image is, is, is quite controlled, right? And often um, drained of people yeah, and life and so on. I mean, it focuses on one, two, three people. It's often very geometric, uh, 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 you know, we talked about the nightclub sequences, and I was also thinking 
that I even associate a type of music with these films, which is, you know, that 1960s cool jazz. Yeah, often one instrument. It's often a piano. Yeah, mm. kind of, you know. So, so it's a particular world, yeah, with particular sights and sounds and mood. I think it's all about mood, really, you know. Um, yeah, there's a huge amount of characters having understandings of each other without necessarily saying much. Yes. You know. Um, which I think in some respects actually comes down to genre as well. Like it's the, the characters understand the genre that they're working in. Yeah. You exactly. know, so they understand this guy's a robber and this guy's a cop and blah, blah, blah. And um, they actually, they understand how each other will act and, or perceive their actions and so on and so forth. Yes. Which is interesting. Yes. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of shortcuts to that world. Uh, that's for sure. You know, mm. uh, you don't need to explain a lot of things when you're working through a genre, you know. And uh, But on the other hand, you know, one of the fascinations for me is also like you do get to see Paris in 1970. Yeah, yeah actually, I thought yeah. that in this as well. It was it was interesting to look at the city, yeah. the way it was filmed, which I hadn't felt so much in the other films. Yeah, I felt it here. Yes, uh, uh, you see a little bit in Un Flic, yeah, because there's all those scenes where kind of they go in the car. But these almost feel like stolen shots, right? So, you know, kind of the loan comes out of prison and, you know, it's meant to be seven o'clock in the morning or something. And, you know, you see him on the street. It's almost empty. You know, the Place Vendôme, that must have been kind of cut off, you know, because you you see Montan run through the car with a completely empty Place Vendôme. I mean, these are all iconic kind of, you know, Paris locations, really. Yeah, it's yeah. Where, where the jewelry shops, the big expensive shops are. Uh, um. Have you ever seen Set Eight and Rendezvous? It's a short film. It's uh, it's by Claude Lelouch. It's from 1976, and it's it's a really iconic. I think you really like it. It's on YouTube and stuff. It's um, the camera was just put on the front of a car, and then he drove it through Paris at high speed at like five in the morning before anyone was around. And so it's so it's like again, it's what you say. It's a stolen shot, and basically just drives this car all the way through. And they put the sound of like a Ferrari on it, so it sounds really fast. And then he ends up at uh, Montmartre, I think, and he kisses a girl, and that's the end. It's something that you really like because it has that sense of Paris of an era, uh-huh. and they are not allowed to be there as well. Okay, you know, and that has a sense of this, as you say here. It's a beautiful place to look at. And it's a, and it's a really it's the mood that you talk about. Mm. Everything sets up a mood in this. Yes, you know, and um, when they go, when when the heist basically kind of begins, and the the guy turns the lights off, and every 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 uh, click of a light going off is accompanied by a bit of music, yes, and then oh, it's going to start. Yes, um, he really lets you see, and he lingers over things. So I also love, for example, you know, when Montand arrives, and he's a little bit early. So he goes up the stairs and you see him go up the stairs and then you see him come down the stairs, uh, you know. And of course, in some ways, the shots are not telling you much. They're not conveying much information. Or let's put it another way. The mood they're creating exceeds the information, the narrative information that they're conveying. Yeah. yeah. So it's not that they're not doing nothing. It's just that they're doing something else Yeah. than, than merely telling you, a, yeah. Yeah, telling you a plot point. Do you think uh, Melville comes across as a happy person through these films? Um, <laughs> what do you think he wants his audiences to feel? I think they're very philosophical, and I think they're very fatalistic. Yeah, I mean, basically, what they're saying is, you know, you're always alone. Yeah, 
kind of love is a problem. Uh, there's a, a value in professionalism yeah, and doing yeah. your job. Um, people can be relied upon in terms of feeling you're always going to be betrayed <laughs> I mean, that's what i get out of it you know and on the other hand there's a real romanticism about it he clearly okay. loves this you know yeah kind of yeah uh he loves the impassivity of delon's face he loves he loves the um the nightclub that particular type of jazz music the kind of fatalism, a kind of a romance of, you know, an underworld, yeah, uh, which kind of has its own bonds, yeah, and code of behavior that's adhered to, you know, um, yeah. Because I think when you think about the way that someone like Tarantino picks up on these films and talks about them and, and, and kind of appropriates elements of their style. It's about, God, they're so cool, these guys. You know, the way yes. they stand on street corners, the way they have their hats tipped, the way they have their hands in their pockets and the belt and all the, and the raincoat and so on. You know, it's about, oh, wow, it's cool. And and and, and the way you, you, you kind of hear people talk about it would suggest... A, a kind of a, a vivality to the world, which actually I think when you watch the films is not saying that you feel right. It's they're slower than that, yes. and they're more pensive. Yes, they are. You know, they are about mood and thinking, and you know, they are. I think they are really existentialist films. It, it is like these films where everyone is alone in the world, everyone is detached. You know, you you can never really connect with anybody else. You know, if you do so, it's momentarily, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and on the other hand, you know, you you have the freedom to act, yeah. And with that freedom to act also comes a collective responsibility. We saw this very much in Army of Shadows. But actually, you see this within this group of people as well. Yeah, they're all acting in accordance with a code. Yeah, and it's a code they trust more than they trust the person. Yeah, so, you know, if they see you as a person who, who behaves according to the code, then you're trusted. <laughs> yeah, independent yeah. of, you know, kind of other qualities. So, um, you know, they are very existential films. Yeah, and kind of, um, I, I love them. Of, of the four we've seen, how would you rank them? What's your favorite? What's your least favorite? Well, my, my favorite is Army of Shadows, yeah, without a doubt, because there you see a political purpose, yeah. I mean, you know, Le Doulos, uh, Un Flic, uh, and um, uh, Le Cercle Rouge are really like cop films or heist films. Yeah, they're, they're films mm -hmm. about criminals, you know. Uh, I do think that Army of Shadows, you know, uses many of the same tropes but attributes them to other resistance yeah kind of you know there are continuities there but you really get the sense of political purpose of working to a cause of you know yeah. working towards freedom and liberation and yeah so it, yeah and actually maybe that cause is also what gives these people a kind of a purpose because in the gangster films these characters have no purpose and very little drive i mean you know, kind of, I either fulfill their function, they rob if they're robbers or, yeah, mm. okay, and so on. But, it's, you know, you don't get the sense that, like, the loan is gasping for money, right? Like, 
kind of, you know, when he loses it, you know, when it gets drenched in blood, he just leaves it, right? So, you know, somebody else might have thought, oh, I'll wash it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, So you don't get the sense that actually it's the money that drives them. Yeah, it's almost like it's the code that drives them. Yeah, Mm. Yeah. or it's just, that's just, well, it's it's what I've been saying all along about the the mechanical feeling to it. It's just, that's what you are. You are a cop, and so you chase down robbers. You are a robber, so you rob stuff. Mm. And that's just what you do until you die. But the films do convey a mood, a feeling, an attitude, yeah, that... Are, you know, are also part of our philosophy. Yeah, so these films have depth, uh, you know, um, and that are very, very distinctive. Yeah, I can't, you know, kind of, you instantly recognize a Melville film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think any film that has someone who's done up their raincoat really tightly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> has a gun in the pocket. <laughs> And his imitation French. Or that's someone who's copied Melville. Uh, All right. Well, um, let's let's wrap this up. Kind of your final thoughts on the film. I liked it. I thought it was interesting. I quite like the high sequence. There were things that are lacking. I really don't like Delon very much in it at all. I think he's uh, a distraction, actually. That's how out of sync with the film I I felt he was. Too good looking Um, for you then. He might have been, you know, because he can't like his eyes. Wow, his eyes are so fucking beautiful, you know. And then they tried to put that mustache on him to screw it up, and it just, it just, Uh I couldn't take me up, you know. He looks like someone who is so dedicated to being inconspicuous. Do you know what I mean? Like he looks like he's wearing a disguise. Like if you saw him on a street corner, you go, "I see that guy. Uh He's looking inconspicuous," (laughs) and you can see how inconspicuous he is because I can't take my eyes off him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But it was good. Army of Shadows was brilliant, though, and that's the one. Like out of all of them, I, I, in a sense, it's not the one to introduce people to Melville with, because yeah. it's it's not a genre piece, and that and it seems like that is kind of more where you would start with Melville uh-huh. as we did. Yes. Um, but Army of Shadows of the four we've seen is clearly to me superior to the other three, yeah. and it's a real interesting complex work of art. Mm. I, I do, I must say, I love all of them. Uh, uh, so as part of the movie season, uh, they also showed... They showed Leo Moran Priest yes. and Bob Le Flambeau. Bob Le Flambeau is, is marvellous. So I, I think my favourites really are Bob Le Flambeau, Le Samurai, which we haven't seen, it wasn't shown as part of the season, and, and Army of Shadows. Uh, so anyway, a truly brilliant filmmaker, a unique voice whose influence is is felt uh, to this day uh, and I highly recommend that uh, people see these films Le Mot Juste <laughs> okay <laughs> so, th- thank you all very much for listening we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, uh, SoundCloud, Spotify and YouTube is where you can listen to us on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies uh, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com Thank you very much for listening.